You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Thank you to Anthology for sponsoring today's episode. At Anthology, their mission is to provide dynamic, data-informed edtech experiences to the global education community so that learners and educators can achieve their goals. Discover the many ways they can help drive institutional success at your university today. Learn more at Anthology.com. Hello, and welcome to the Times Higher Education Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer. Artificial intelligence has a lot of potential. On that, I think most people agree. It can automate onerous tasks for teachers, help researchers leapfrog exercises that require complex computing skills, and make higher education more accessible. But the risks of using AI are where things get a bit murkier. Even on THE campus, we have one author saying, AI will allow teachers to spend more time connecting with their students, whether that's in person or virtually. With the reduction in educators' workload, their time can be freed up to concentrate on higher impact tasks, leading to better outcomes and a more fulfilling, effective experience for learners. And another saying, one downside of AI is that lecturers will not get to know their students as thoroughly as is desirable if they never do any marking. Some middle ground is needed. AI can mark some assignments, but for a lecturer to accurately assess and understand a student's ability, it is vital that the lecturer sees a significant amount of a student's output. It's safe to say we're far away from exactly how higher education can harness AI and machine learning's great potential in a safe way. But as one of today's guests tells us, continuing to discuss and explore AI is the only way to make progress. But before we begin, Join me in welcoming back our senior content curator, Miranda Prynne, to the podcast. Hello, Miranda. Good to have you back. Hello. Great to be here. I was really excited to get involved with this podcast, as I have to admit to feeling quite out of my depth when talking about AI, mm. which I think is something many people feel. Um, I've realized the only way out of that is to start asking questions of those who understand and work with it. Certainly. I mean, yes, I completely feel out of my depth. It's definitely something I feel I have kind of an idea about, and it's certainly something I interact with most days of my life, but I can't say when pressed if I could totally explain it to, say, a nine-year-old. Yeah, quite. And that's actually why I found speaking to John Wu, um, who is an assistant astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute and an associate research scientist at Johns Hopkins University, really helpful because he uses machine learning to study the cosmos in ways that I will go into later. But he was able to explain the various applications in a way that I found very useful and accessible. Mm. It was really nice as well because um, he very much believes that anyone could be adept with AI, but also did point out that we don't all need to be AI experts and that it's a huge field. So with so many different applications and such kind of fast evolution, even those who are actually engaged with and using AI don't know about huge swathes of it. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad to hear there might be hope for all of us still if he believes anyone can become adept with AI. Um, before we go to John though, let's let's go first to uh, the person I spoke with, who is Ashut Goel. 
Mashuk is a professor of computer science and human-centered computing in the School of Interactive Computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. And he is the guy when it comes to using AI in education. He developed the first automated teaching assistant at Georgia Tech in 2016, and he's been researching cognitive systems for over 35 years. He's recently become the co-principal investigator and executive director of the AI Aloe Institute, which is a consortium of universities, nonprofits, and corporations uh, set up to research the use of AI in adult learning and online education. Ashok, for people who might not know, could you tell us who Jill Watson is? Sure. Well, there was a great start. Uh, <laughs> um, Jill Watson is an automated question answering system that answers questions, students' questions, on an online discussion forum of a class. Uh, students um, have questions at all times, so this can answer question anytime, any place. Um, you could be, say, in Romania at um, 5 p.m., and there's no one at Atlanta who is willing to uh, entertain your question. Jill Watson will. Hmm. Um, so Jill Watson is uh, one of those um, virtual teaching assistants. We like to think as the one of the world's first virtual teaching assistants that can automatically answer questions. Hmm. And you and your team developed Jill Watson to answer the thousands of questions that you are getting on the massive master's program in computer science that Georgia Tech launched in 2014? Yeah, uh, the program was launched, Sarah, in 2014, like you say. Uh, Jill Watson itself was launched in 2016. Okay. So it's been about six years since the first version came around. We obviously can see perhaps the benefits of Jill Watson to, as you say, answer questions 24 hours a day for students. And as the experiment showed with the open master's program, you got it to a very high level, or you got Jill to a very high level of accuracy. I think it was 97% of the questions she was answered, she answered correctly. Why do you think there aren't now thousands of Jill Watsons giving that personalized education uh, experience to students at universities around the world? Yeah, uh, so let me first uh, make one modification. Uh, Jill Watson does not always answer up to 97% of the questions. Um, so um, the amount, number of questions it answers varies, um, and it varies anyway from 80%, about 80% to about 97%. So 97% is just one number. I want to make sure that I'm accurate in. Okay, thanks. Yes, you're right. Conversational agents are all around us. Um, so, you know, you can ask questions of, customer service agents and virtual teaching assistants, even Alexa, you can ask questions, Siri. So one question, uh, one way of thinking of your question is why are conversational agents suddenly so successful? Um, you know, I'm reminded of something that people said about Stephen Jobs. So one of the stories about Stephen Jobs is that it, his genius lay not so much in the invention of an iPhone, as much as it laid in that, he made all of us aware that we needed an iPhone. Uh, so it's in that uh, satisfying a social need, identifying a human need where the genius lay rather than the technological invention itself. In a similar way, I think what we are finding with the conversational agents is that we didn't know that there was a human need, a social need for conversational agents, uh, that all of us needed 
to have a question answering agents at our fingertips so that we could ask any question, questions that we might not ask to other humans, but that we are willing to ask Alexa or Jill Watson. Um, so I think what has happened over the last 10 years is that just like with iPhones about 20 years back, um, over the last 10 years, we have suddenly identified a social need. Humans have a need to get answers to their questions almost immediately. And do we have questions? We have lots of questions. So so I guess my, my question for you then is why I can totally see how um, these this technology has expanded to other parts of our lives, especially as consumers and everyday technology, but they're not as ubiquitous within a higher education environment. Why do you think they haven't taken off in such a way? Yeah, so that's a great question, a question that we have struggled with in our lab. So uh, one of the um, sort of secrets of Jill Watson is that although we introduced the first Jill Watson in uh, 2016, it has been six years and we have been trying to see whether we can introduce Jill Watson for every online course that Georgia Tech offers. Uh, or every course that Georgia Tech offers, not just online, but even in person. Or for that matter, why not have a Jill Watson for every college course, every adult learning course in the world? Uh, we should be able to do that. And we haven't been able to do that. So um, why not that success? I think there are several reasons. Let me share uh, at least two of the most prominent ones. One reason is that the issue then becomes scalability of Jill Watson. How do you scale it not from one, to, from one class to 100 classes to 1,000 classes? Now, our estimate is that if you deploy a Jill Watson in a large online class, you can save up to 100 hours of teacher's time, which is quite a lot. Mm. Um, on the other hand, what if it takes 100 hours to build a Jill Watson? Then the return on investment is, well, one is to one, and that's not a good enough return of investment. So while we want Jill Watson to answer lots of questions and save a lot of time of teachers, it's important that it's, um, that it's really easy to construct Jill Watson. Anyone should be able to construct Jill Watson within a few hours. And therein lies one difficulty. So AI has not yet reached a point where any teacher can construct a Jill Watson for his or her class within say five hours of investment of time. So now we are developing a new approach that uh, we're calling it machine teaching, which, which, which should empower uh, teachers to build their own Jill Watson for their own classes so that I am not building a Jill Watson for everyone. Uh, so now in our lab, uh, we can build a Jill Watson in about 10 hours of work. So we are getting there. The other reason is has to do with human AI interaction. You can deploy a Jill Watson but will humans necessarily use it? Will humans use it the way you expected them to use it? So every time we deploy Jill Watson, uh, you know, a lot of questions students ask are not really in the scope of Jill Watson. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? Or, um, you know, who created you? Or will you date me? And those are questions that Jill Watson can't answer. Uh, unfortunately, not yet. <clears throat> Also, not just the questions that Jill Watson can't answer. In almost every class, some students almost immediately try to break Jill Watson. So there are human factors involved in it. We're introducing AIs in the middle of humans. It's not just about AI, it's about humans as well. Mm. I'm glad you brought up that point because 
My next question for you is about that human interaction. And I know that you come from a family of educators. Your grandfather was a teacher. Your father was a teacher. You say teaching is in your DNA. What do you think their response to a Jill Watson would be? You know, no one has asked me that question earlier. So, so thank you for asking me. This requires a bit of thinking here. Hmm. Uh, I think my father and my grandfather might have different responses. <laughs> um, my, my grandfather might say, bravo, kudos, you know, you've done something useful. My father might say, huh, not good enough. So <laughs> I, I think this is partly generational and partly my relationship with them is obviously very different. Fathers can be very, very tough on their, uh, on their sons. Um, but I think the deeper question you are asking is, um, how is technology changing from generation to generation? It's that, and then it's that, and then also, I guess the the cultural shift in terms of teaching and pedagogy that this that this indicates for for teachers, for people in your position, in your in your father and grandfather's positions. Yeah, uh, I think one of the observations uh, at, that many people have shared is that there is a real you know, since you're talking about my father and grandfather, I'm originally from India, they were from uh, India. Um, there is a very big difference in the sort of first world view of Jill Watson and the third world view of Jill Watson. Uh, so in the United States, I'm often asked the question, if there are lots of Jill Watsons, will that mean that some professors will lose their jobs? Uh, because, you know, if some work is being offloaded to an automated assistant, there is less work left for a professor. Uh, in India, no one has ever asked me that question mm. um, because there, there is such a shortage of teachers that they will, will take any assistance that they can get. Mm. So that question does not yet arise in the Indian context. So uh, in that sense, my father and my grandfather, I'm thinking now about a very different context on the uh, you know, United States context. Mm. Um, they might say that this is useful because there is a lack of teachers, of college teachers in India. And if we can do anything at all, that will be very useful. Picking up on that point about this perhaps outsourcing a human being's skill set, that was another question I had for you because I know that you've also developed Vera, which is the Virtual Experimentation Research Assistant, which helps researchers in modeling, right? Which is a, which is a big part of, of academic research. And that takes out the need for complex math skills or programming skills so that anyone can really do this modeling. And I wonder if that, much like Google Maps has perhaps dulled our ability to navigate using a map, does that perhaps not risk scientists and, and researchers' ability to do that complex math and programming? Does that not dull their skills if we are outsourcing some of this? So that's a good point, um, Sarah. But uh, one way, there's a, I see the concern. But another way of thinking about this is that, you know, Anywhere I go now, I take my glasses with me. My glasses are a part of me. Um, we can easily imagine humans of tomorrow as having these um, gadgets with them. They are part of the humans. So we are, in some sense, redefining what it means to be a human. So I bet you take an iPhone with you wherever you go. Uh, I think mm. I do. We all do. Um, and um, I lost my iPhone the other day, and I was really lost for about 24 hours until I got a new iPhone. Um, <laughs> and I cannot make an emergency call. My children can't call me. My colleagues can't call me. It was a real nuisance. Um, so 
perhaps uh, in some sense we are redefining what it means to be a human because all of us will have gadgets like that and they are part of us then. So uh, in that case, we may never need the, uh, we may never need to do arithmetic or algebra again because these devices will do it for us. And the same thing for modeling also. Um, there is one other point I want to quickly make uh, in this regard. So um, a sort of big picture vision here, Sarah, is that the quality of online education, online education is here to stay. Online education is not going anywhere, especially for higher education. Uh, for upskilling, reskilling, we will need online education um, because there are people who cannot leave their families and their homes, except for the 18 to 22 year olds. You know, um, older adults cannot typically leave their families and homes. So instead of they, they are going to get to education, we'll have to take education to them. Um, so it's online education. But the quality of online education is very uneven. Mm. Um, and so the question then becomes, can we use things like Jill Watson and Vera and other things that people are developing to improve the quality of online education to a level where it's comparable to in-person education? And so that's a sort of big picture vision. So when I look at that big picture vision, where say a generation from now, uh, if you had the choice or I had the choice or our friends and family had the choice of going in-person or um, online, we wouldn't even consider that to be a major factor in terms of quality. They mm. would be equally good mm. in quality. To get there, we have to develop things like Vera and Jill Watson and many other things in order to take the quality higher. Now, I don't know whether that, that, that answers, uh, I think in my mind, that's related to your previous question. There are costs, but I think the benefits outweigh the cost. One of my questions for you is, as we're talking about AI and higher education, and I agree with you, it's it's here to say it's certainly online education, the pandemic has showed us that. I'm curious to hear how you think um, AI or machine learning might help answer some of the bigger issues in higher education. You've talked about accessibility, you've talked about quality, but what about things like attrition or equity, diversity and inclusion, or even funding problems? Yeah. So affordability and accessibility are going to help with inclusion, uh, I think. Um, first, let me say that uh, you're right. There are serious issues here. So we have not addressed every issue. Uh, diversity, inclusion, fairness, trust, um, privacy, security mm. are huge mm. issues. Mm. Um, we'll be uh, using student data that immediately issues. With, um, um, even in case of Jill Watson, when Jill Watson answers a question, then Jill Watson knows who is asking a question at what time from where. So there is some, uh, you know, we are collecting data and there are privacy issues there. Um, so there are issues of privacy, uh, there are issues of accessibility, but one of the advantages of um, these AI technologies, as we have learned from the Georgia Tech OMSCS programmers, that things become a lot more affordable. And if they become a lot more affordable, in the long run, we hope that it would also mean a lot more equitable. Uh, because the, one of the distinctions in our society is not just across the sort of common demographic differences that we talk about, but one of the big differences is a class difference, uh, where there are people um, who cannot afford to go to college. So looking at them, um, I think if we can make it more affordable and more accessible, we'll help make it more equitable and more inclusive also. You've mentioned 
privacy there, and I, I want to get into some of the ethical issues around AI, which I'm sure you are expecting. But just to go back to kind of students and privacy, and and as AI becomes more part of the learning experience, especially for undergraduates, is there some um, learning or education that needs to be done there in terms of how students interact with AI and teaching students how to learn if AI is is a part of that equation? Yeah, and these are great questions. To put it another way, uh, consider two students, one of whom is very comfortable with, with computers and machine learning and artificial intelligence, and another less so. Um, will one student benefit more from the other than the other student? And that itself raises questions, not only of privacy, but of uh, fairness. In fact, there are lots of causes for concern. So one of the, some data trends show that uh, men tend to be more confident, at least self-perceived self-confidence, whether they're actually confident or not is a different matter, but they actually at least project con confident uh, in dealing with AI and machine learning and computing and high technology than women do. Will this put women students at a disadvantage? And if it does that, then that will be extremely un unfortunate. Um, so how do we uh, address huge problems of that kind? Uh, technologies that are inherently unbiased and inherently, in fact, we want to develop technologies that, that promote those communities who have not had access to higher education. Um, we want to promote that uh, rather than prevent that. Mm. Um, so yes, there are huge issues. I was going to tell you a story from Jill Watson of the kind of problems that occur. Um, so when we first uh, built a Jill Watson, um, a male student said that my wife is expecting a baby in the middle of the semester, and so I may have need to take two or three weeks off. And Jill Watson's response was, well, welcome to the class, and also uh, we welcome the addition to the uh, new addition to the family. In the next semester, a female student said, I'm pregnant and I'm expecting a baby in the middle of the class, um, and I may need to take um, a, two, three weeks off. And Jill Watson said, welcome to the class. And nothing about welcome to the new addition to the family, mm. which intrigued us, you know, why should Jill Watson uh, of all agents uh, make that um, difference between the two? And as we looked at it, it turns out that about 85% of the students at that time were male students in that program. Only 15% were women students. And Jill Watson had come across another male student asking a similar question. So it knew how to answer it, but it never come across a woman student saying, I'm pregnant and didn't know how to answer it. So it did the best it could, which was welcome to the class without saying anything about pregnancy or addition to the family. So um, because the demographic distribution was skewed in the class, therefore the data we had collected was skewed uh, in terms of the questions previous people had previously asked, I had asked, and therefore Jill Watson's responses were skewed. Uh, so huge issues that we have to deal with. Of course, we stopped that program immediately um, because we, that was unacceptable. And we built a new version of Jill Watson that answers questions based on class syllabi and course materials, which are purely objective insofar as we know they are purely objective. And that problem has not occurred again. Mm. Uh, but those problems like this will keep on occurring until we figure out a way uh, of addressing them. And then the key thing will be to, very sen to be sensitive to the problems right from the beginning. Hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying is 
there's an element of kind of trial and error here in terms of until we get it right because it is so based on subjective data sets. Um, but then also we need to make sure that we're kind of failing fast here and have a contingency plan in place whenever these AI systems do fail. Very much so. I think you hit upon exactly the two right things that, well, right things, things that we have also concluded. One that um, the development of not only AI as an experimental science, but ethical AI is also an experimental science. Mm. We constantly conduct experiments. We try to see what works right and what does not work right. Um, but the other point that you made also was that we have to have design processes in place uh, that um, identify these potential ethical problems early on. So now we do participatory design extensively. So in participatory design, we involve all these stakeholders, um, students, teachers, administrators, in the process of designing the AI technologies. In some ways, Sarah, what is happening is AI has become so powerful that it cannot be left to AI researchers alone. Mm, mm. Um, it's too powerful a tool now to, to be left to just, you know, a few small group of um, AI researchers working in a lab, socially isolated. Um, now the design process must involve everyone who's going to be using that AI technology. In an interview that I came across that you did with Ed Surge back in 2020, which I feel like you can say back in 2020 because so much of this stuff is so advanced so quickly and also the world has changed so much in two years time. But you said, we are still in a phase of look ma, no hands, I can ride a bike without hands. We haven't started thinking about the possibility that we're going to fall and hurt ourselves or hurt someone else. And you were talking about the development of AI there. Are we still in that state, do you think? I think so, Sarah. I wish I could say that we have matured a lot. Uh, I think I'll feel a lot more confident. And this goes back to one of the questions you asked earlier. Uh, why isn't Jill Watson being used more extensively? I think I'll feel a lot more confident that we have matured if a thousand crosses started using Jill Watson all across the world. Um, and we are not there yet. Um, until we get there, uh, for, consider, for example, a simple question. We have used Jill Watson mostly in classes in computer science, um, some in other sciences. What if we were to introduce Jill Watson in a class on, say, nursing or philosophy or poetry? Um, will people react the same way to Jill Watson? Uh, will they be more uh, concerned or suspicious or skeptical? Um, uh, we don't know the answers to those questions because we haven't tried those experiments yet. Um, so I still think we are at that early stage of look, ma, no hands kind of thing. Um, I think part of what your new project is with the National AI Institute for Adult Learning and Online Education, spearheaded by Georgia Tech, but with significant funding from the National Science Foundation with a grant of $20 million, I think you're, you're trying to perhaps extend that area of practice that AI needs in order to really bed down and become part of the regular day-to-day -day of education. Can you tell us about the, is it AI Allo? Am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> we have used all kinds of pronunciation, but used really okay. well. Tell us about that. So there is an opportunity here. While there is a challenge um, of online learning and alert learners and lifetime learning, uh, there's also an opportunity. Online learning is offering us unprecedented amounts of data. Perhaps for the first time in the history of higher education, and I know I'm making bold statements when I say history of higher education and talking to um, experts in higher education, but I'll go ahead and do that anyway. Um, perhaps for the first time in history of higher education, we have access to 
huge amounts of data about each learner and each learning step. Uh, so when I, I've been teaching for about 33 years, but the truth is the amount of data that I've collected about my students is minimal. Mm. My understanding of data, their data is also very, very sparse. So the way I react to that data is not very productive at all. I just go teach and the students learn that they don't learn, you know, I mean, um, do you sink or you swim? But suppose that we could collect a lot of data on the learners and the learning, which is what AILO is partly about. Um, we are collecting huge amounts of data and process it in near real time. So almost immediately and feed it back to teachers, learners, as well as AI assistants. Now that is a sort of virtual feed, virtuous feedback loop where AI assistants are constantly teaching learners, constantly helping teachers, but it, the entire enterprise is data-driven based on evidence about learners and learning. And building that virtuous feedback loop is the goal of AI alone. This ambitious goal is not going to happen in the next five years, but you know we have to start somewhere. Hmm. And do you think that with the, the pandemic and the forced shift to online and increasing use of LMSs and OPMs and universities are capturing a lot more data about students just because most of the learning is is more online. Are you has that perhaps accelerated this project or is it perhaps not going down the right path in terms of using that data effectively? Yeah, you're indeed right. Universities are collecting a lot more data. And in fact, Georgia Tech has just over the last six months started its own uh, large scale data enterprise um, where they are not only collecting data, they always were collecting data, but of analyzing their data and using it uh, to help uh, teachers and learners. What is different between AI-LO and all other efforts that I know about in this space is that we have introduced AI agents in the middle, AI agents like Vera and Jill Watson. Mm. So all other efforts that I know about are about collecting data, processing the data and sharing the data with maybe teachers um, or maybe with learners. But there is no AI agents in the mix. Now, but suppose that you add AI agents and AI agents become part of this learning ecosystem so AI agents are helping teachers teach, they're helping learners learn. So they are the ones that are processing this data at near real time, making sense of it and helping teachers make sense of it and helping learners make sense of it. So in that sense, the AI, the uh, technology infrastructure we are developing insofar as I know is a little different from all of the architectures that I have seen so far. And if there was perhaps a, if you had a magic wand and there was perhaps one thing that you would change about the current setup, and again, if we're talking about broad terms, the current setup of higher education, and I understand you're based at Georgia Tech, you're from India, higher education systems around the world are so vastly different. But what, what would be the one thing that you think needs to change if, if AI is to really become this powerful, useful tool that it could be to educators? I think most of the problems in higher education are not necessarily technology problems as much as they are culture problems. Um, uh, so consider for instance, data. It is not that universities have not had that data earlier. They have had this data for years, um, but uh, most of the data typically is siloed. It's kept under various jurisdictions. These jurisdictions tend to be territorial and not willing to share that data. Mm. There are also legal and ethical problems about data privacy. Yeah. So there is a reason why they tend to be territorial and so protective. Uh, but these are sort of cultural, institutional issues. 
Um, and I think if uh, there was a magic wand or something of that kind, they would get all of these people to sit in the same room and resolve it, how they're going to share their data in a, and while still protecting student privacy. And doing that is really very difficult to do. Just to go back on that ethical question, because I think it is one that kind of niggles in the backs of people's mind whenever we are having these conversations. Is there, and we've, we've seen the, the pitfalls of this, of this not being done correctly in other sectors. Is there, is now the time to be establishing those incredibly robust ethical um, blueprints? I know the, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy has just released their AI blueprint all about how they would expect AI to be developed in the United States. Is, is now the time to be having those conversations and are they fail safe? Yeah, great questions. Uh, first of all, ethics is um, a huge issue. If I think of the single biggest, biggest risk in AILO, then I would say it's leak of data. Uh, the one thing that keeps me up at night, if you will, you know, to put it that way, um, is that there'll be a data breach and that will put an end to AILO and all of our efforts. Uh, so that's my biggest worry. So we spend a lot of time worrying about um, issues of data security and data privacy. Yes, this is the right time to be talking about these things. Um, and in fact, there are a large number of conversations going on. Almost everyone in AI right now is very, very aware of these and is paying a lot of attention. The difficulty is that while there exists a large number of frameworks, theoretical, conceptual, even formal frameworks for ethics, uh, they do not yet exist insofar as I know. Um, frameworks for how to operationalize them in terms of real technology. Mm. So there are these ethical values that we can all agree on. And in fact, there is no disagreement on that. Um, fairness, for example, or trust or privacy. Mm -hmm. But how do you actually translate them into specific practices that ensure trust and fairness is an open question. We don't yet know how to do that. Um, yeah. I, so um, it's not that frameworks don't exist, but we don't know how to translate them into practices, which is where participatory design comes in. Um, now, participatory design is no magic solution, but it gives us the a tool, a methodology for taking these frameworks, putting them in front of people, real people, real users, real designers, not just AI researchers, and saying, here are some values that we want to ensure, that we want to promote. How do we design AI technology, um, the practice of AI technology, so that those values will be satisfied? Uh, so that's exactly what a lot of people have been trying to do in AI. But there is a shift back to culture. Um, so AI also has a culture, not just Georgia Tech or higher institutions, higher education institutions. And AI, since the beginning of AI, people have thought of progress always in form of algorithms. If you have a better algorithm than I have, or you come up with a better algorithm tomorrow, then well, you have added value. AI traditionally has not thought in terms of um, AI as part of a social system. Mm. And if you start thinking of AI or machine learning or data science as part of a human social system, as a social technical system, there's a very different view. Then the progress in AI is not measured through algorithms or algorithmic efficiency, progress that gets me measured in terms of how much did it help some human being somewhere, somewhere, and how much did it mitigate all the risks that go with that, like privacy and so on. So in some sense, the AI culture has to shift in a significant way 
if we're going to start using Jill Watson, not as an algorithm in one class, but as a technology in a thousand classes that serves a million students. And it sounds like the, 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 the path to that is, like you said, that kind of interdisciplinary approach with bringing in many, many different perspectives to feed into how this will be introduced into the culture of an institution. I think so. At least it provides a starting point. Now, when we once we start doing that, we'll find problems there too. That's the way science makes progress, right? We have problems everywhere, um, but that's okay. Uh, at least that's a path forward rather than being stuck in just coming up with better algorithms. Mm. Um, Ashok, this is clearly what you have dedicated your life to and what you continue to work on with the AI Alloy uh, project. What are you most excited about, about the possibilities that AI holds for higher education? You know, education is the difference between civilization and chaos. I think H.G. Wills said that. Um, so the way we, the reason we have civilization is partly because we have education and they go together. So if we want a more civilized world, uh, then we have to have better education, make it more affordable, more equitable, more accessible, more achievable. And AI provides a potential path towards it, as long as we also attend to other factors of culture, of demographics, of economy. AI is going to be part of the mix. And I think that provides a ample opportunity for all of us to work together. Great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. So Ashok ending there on a positive note about AI's role in expanding access to higher education and also increasing the levels of civilization for humanity, which are pretty big claims. Yeah, you and he explored some really interesting questions during that conversation. I think his final point about the need for a shift of culture, in inverted commas, yeah. from thinking about an amazing new algorithm to thinking about AI as part of a human system and thus measured against its wider impact on humanity really stood out for me. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I think that's one thing that's so fascinating about speaking with these people who are so ingrained in the development of these systems is they can really see those connections between kind of the human interaction and connection with AI and machine learning, whereas novices like I'll speak for you, Miranda, ourselves perhaps kind of see it as this big black box tech thing, which is totally alien. Yeah, exactly. What also I think became clear from that conversation actually was that AI requires a collaborative approach with, with different experts feeding into the design and the implementation, um, but also, you know, people that, that maybe are more lay lay people who can kind of filter into the ethics and, and other areas of it. Um, and this chimes with what John Wu, who I spoke to, said about how AI is best used in research. Mm. Now, John uses machine learning to process astronomical imaging data at pixel scale to help him study the development of galaxies. So it's a really good example of where AI tools are carrying out a task that would be incredibly difficult for humans to do effectively. And thus, it is helping advance the research and advance our knowledge far quicker than we could do without it. So John is a proponent of AI, but he definitely feels it needs careful handling.
Hi, John. Great to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, great to have you. And I'm very excited to chat to you about applications of artificial intelligence in academic research because you've written a fantastic resource for us on this topic focused on machine learning and the sort of limitations, but also the potential you know, of these tools to really enhance research. So I thought we could start off by hearing a little bit about how you use AI in your own research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm an astronomer, and in particular, I like to study how uh, galaxies grow and evolve. Uh, and so, you know, galaxies are these fantastical combinations of, of dark matter and stars and gas and dust and stuff like that. Uh, and we have this exquisite imaging of them. So we have these beautiful images, and perhaps you've seen these in, you know, in outreach images and things like that. Um, but oftentimes when it comes to analyzing galaxies, because there are billions of them um, in many, uh, you know, astronomical analyses, these galaxies get reduced to just a few measurements of their brightness or their color or shape parameters and things like that. And, you know, these things have physical meaning. And so people will try to study galaxies and understand, you know, how different aspects of their growth uh, are correlated. But what I've been working on is making use of the full, you know, pixel level data. So just directly going from the images and leveraging, you know, deep learning algorithms uh, to process the images and try to learn connections between, you know, how galaxies would grow and evolve. Um, and we've made all sorts of interesting insights, basically showing that, you know, different aspects of these galaxies morphologies uh, seem to be heavily correlated with, uh, you know, basically other properties of the galaxies here. Fantastic. So very good example of the sort of capabilities that would simply not be possible, presumably without this sort of digital power that you're that you're using. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and finding these kinds of connections is really important for researchers, right? It's 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 almost trying to see what kind of surprises that the universe has in store for us. Um, and and discovering those connections also challenges our theoretical understanding. So it's it's both you know in terms of application and and going back to our our theory, uh, it's it's very vital, uh, especially you know if you're interested in studying the physical sciences. Yeah, I have a question. Do you? yourself and, and the team you work with on this specific research, do you develop the algorithms, the, the AI tools yourselves, or do you work with others? Because I'm just, I mm -hmm. ask, because I wonder what a researcher whose work could sort of benefit from AI, but but who doesn't have expertise in it, how they might develop its use. Yeah, uh, I certainly started off using uh, more off-the-shelf tools, um, especially, you know, very recently, I think the machine learning ecosystem of tools, mostly software, has just become uh, more advanced and, and ready to use. Um, so I definitely leverage those capabilities, but I also do develop um, specialized tools. And so in astronomy, we have you know particular formats of data. We have to be able to think about different you know nuances. For example, we don't look at images with only a red, green, and blue channel, but of course we have uh, things that go from the ultraviolet or X-ray all the way to the infrared and radio wavelengths. Um, and so just thinking about um, what types of uh, adaptations we need to make is 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 part of my job as well. So I have developed tools and and in such a way also been able to make insights um, between you know things that make sense in physics and astronomy, uh, and and leverage those into 
you know, how we design our machine learning models. Great. Can you tell me a bit about the types of research kind of beyond focusing on, on your specific work, where you think AI is most powerful? Yeah, right now, you know, we're in the midst of, of a deep learning revolution. And I think this applies to, to many fields of research. Um, so uh, you may have heard, for example, in medical imaging or bioinformatics, um, even robotics, things like that, where AI is, is really helping researchers um, you know, process large amounts of data and, and spot trends and, and things like that um, in fields such as uh, physics or computational chemistry. Um, we're able to analyze these complex interacting systems um, where it would normally be infeasible to compute much just from first principles, from pure uh, simple pen and paper theory. And then, of course, in computer science, we've also probably seen some of the advances uh, in natural language processing, that is looking at text data, or things like you know computer vision, so looking at imaging data, and that's related to my own field. Um, but I think that those also have very many, you know, lots of downstream effects in, in different types of fields. So, for example, if you look at graphical rendering, that can be useful in, you know, in computer vision, but that can also be very interesting if you study like ancient artifacts or something like that. And you want to, you know, make a, a three-dimensional render or something of this artifact and be able to study it. You can think about things like audio or video processing, which is similar to image processing, but this can be useful in, in all sorts of creative fields, such as generating music. Um, and, you know, we've seen AI agents that have learned to play video games or chess or Go. Um, but that's really, you know, that can be applied to other types of research. For example, the interplay of policymaking or decision theory and trying to understand, you know, how multiple agents uh, work together. So I think that, you know, Deep learning has enabled all these types of new advances. Yeah, so I think the, the short answer there is pretty much all research can in some mm -hmm. way benefit from um, AI tools and, and the potential that, that it holds. Carrying on from that, you mentioned natural language processing, computer vision. I just wonder if you can maybe carry on, on on that sort of tangent and explain what the main types of AI used in research are for the lay person to understand. Sure. Yeah. So um, as for natural language processing, I mean, it really is about uh, processing, you know, bits of information that come in a sequence. This is related to other things. Like if you think about audio, uh, audio is really just, you know, signals that progress with time and, uh, and then you link them together and make some coherent sense of them. You can do the same with, with text, for example, uh, words or, or characters on, you know, on some internet page. And so what AI can really do is distill those into some sort of mathematical representation um, that has, you know, that has meaning. Uh, they're, they're, it, at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of numbers, but you can think about meanings of different words and such that, you know, if the numbers are similar to each other, uh, then you end up with words that are similar to each other. And uh, meanings, you know, things that have different meanings, you know, might be distant from each other uh, in, in, you know, in terms of a numerical space. But I guess deviating from that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you're trying to convert these into numbers, then you can take a quantitative measure of all sorts of uh, phenomena. So if looking at text, you might be able to predict what the next word in, in a sequence of words is most likely to be. Um, recently, we've been able 
to see you know that text and and uh, images have some sort of semantic meaning that can actually be shared across um, this abstract space that I was describing. And so you can actually go from an image caption to a computer generated image, an AI generated image, or vice versa. You can you could create a caption from an image. And so these sorts of generative models um, just show, I think, in the next few years, what what might be possible. Um, and, and that might also be very interesting uh, for different subfields of research. Yeah, and I, we talked a lot about the, the potential and then the kind of power that, that these tools possess and, and, and the way they're developing. But for a lot of people, there are lots of concerns that surround AI as well. What would you say as someone who is adept in using it and obviously excited about its potential, but what would you say are the key pitfalls of maybe relying on AI or machine learning to analyze data and spot these trends or make predictions? Um, so I think there are a few pitfalls here. A lot of them tied to the central theme of just not understanding your data set well enough. Um, if you have some data and you wish to train um, some artificial intelligence model, you need to know how that data were constructed, that data set was constructed. You know, so in my field of astronomy, I'm always haunted by the fact that we tend to see things that are uh, intrinsically bright, even if they're very far away. But then we miss things that are nearby, but fainter, you know, intrinsically fainter. And this imparts a particular type of bias, which it just we have to be very careful to work around when we analyze our data. But this is true in, you know, all aspects of, of research. These data sets can be heavily biased and they can ruin our analyses if we're not careful with them. And in fact, these systematic biases also get inherited from the data set into the model. They get frozen into the model. Um, and I think there's huge reason for concern there, whether you're you know, making some sort of biased predictions. And, and I, there's a whole field of ethical AI that studies this in detail. So I want to say that that's definitely something to be wary of. And it's really important to understand how your data set was constructed. Um, as for just machine learning models in general, sometimes it's just overkill. Right? We don't need to rely on some deep neural network to do everything. Uh, one example I can remember a few years back was that, you know, there was a way to predict earthquake aftershocks shocks using a, a deep neural network with tens of thousands of parameters. Um, but then a follow-up work showed that you could actually get just as robust results using a very simple, physically motivated three-parameter model. And so there was no reason to have like tens of thousands of parameters. And that kind of gets at my final point, which is that with AI predictions, um, you need to think hard about interpretability, right? There are ways to interrogate an AI system and try to get it to reveal uh, what its decision-making process. Um, but sometimes, but it, you know, a human has to be there to assign meaning to the types of features that are learned by the model. It, you know, a human, a researcher needs to be able to distill that information into something that will click you know, within the reader's mind, somebody who is hearing and trying to understand this process. And so I think that that final human human element is is necessary there because they offer the interpretation and AI doesn't always. I'm sure that will come as a relief to uh, the many researchers out, out there worried <laughs> about the encroachment of AI. And um, because that was something that I wanted to talk about specifically, really, the role of the human researcher working alongside the AI. And I guess you've kind of answered it in that we still need expert researchers who really understand the context of the data, the mode by which it has been collected and the kind of constraints within which it's been collected. 
to yes. ensure the AI built is correct and right for the purpose, but also, as you mentioned there, to interrogate and interpret the results and the predictions. I mean, on that, I suppose a lot of that covers this idea of kind of quality checking. And I did want to ask, I mean, I don't know what the process is, but is there a body, a person, a process for, in inverted commas, quality checking machine learning and making sure it functions effectively for the task in hand? Unfortunately, I'm not aware of of a centralized body, you know, that would that would be responsible for that. You know, many researchers are interested in publishing their results in in peer-reviewed journals. And so it is to the peers, their peers, their editors, um, you know, and just the community, the research community to to process this work and, and digest it. Um, however, this presents a good opportunity for researchers who are trying to get started in AI, but may have expertise in another field, um, because they are the, the peers of others who are implementing AI. Uh, and even if they're not necessarily involved, you know, firsthand or writing new algorithms, they can certainly check the quality of research. And so, you know, for example, I, I remember there being a big press release a few years back where some, some large tech company uh, was able to diagnose lung cancer scans or, or, you know, diagnose lung cancer using medical imaging scans. Um, but I think a doctor, a radiologist, or someone noticed that the AI, AI model was looking at the wrong parts of the lung, and it was distracted by some other confounding feature. And this is something that as a, a domain expert, the doctor is able to spot these sorts of weird quirks immediately, but maybe somebody who is only peripherally knowledgeable about, you know, medical imaging and things like that, and is more an AI expert, they would miss, they would not be able to put those dots together. So I think it really requires coordination between different fields who, um, who wish to, you know, tackle problems together. And I think it's a good opportunity for folks, especially those who are skeptical about AI, to really put it to the test. I mean, they offer so much value by lending their expertise. Yeah, and I suppose that's following the same model as the, the checks that we have always had in place for research. That peer review process and upholding academic integrity applies just as much to research in, involving AI as to any other form of research. So that hopefully will continue to be an effective quality check. I do wonder, though, how, as someone who is familiar in working with AI, how would you know when an algorithm doesn't work well or, or has a inbuilt biases? What would you look out for? I think a lot of tinkering around is, is always healthy. Uh, whenever you find, you know, so, so one thing that is always a good sign is if researchers are releasing their data, their model, um, you know, their predictions in some sort of open fashion, the software needed to recreate and reproduce their results. That's always a nice sign. And, and if you're able to obtain them, then, you know, you can try uh, seeing how well this AI model behaves, you know, outside of the bounds, perhaps than, than what was tested. And just so that you can get some intuition for how well it works. Uh, oftentimes, if you start implementing many of these models yourself, then you start to see trends, you know, types of of mistakes that that might be made simply because they're offered as like a default explanation or or something they they may have been inherited from you know uh, older research projects in which you know best practices were were defined differently um, and things like that and so when you if you're able to look at the code it is possible to also get a sense of you know how good the research is 
what you've said in a, in a way points to the idea that that the argument for open research practices and real transparency is more important than ever as we embed artificial intelligence and these very complicated um, codes and algorithms into all forms of research. On that, um, bringing it back to the sort of the student level of learning, universities are now needing to prepare students for a future in which AI is already embedded into everything in different ways and will become more so. Do you think we should be teaching all students the basics of AI development and its use? Yeah, I'm a bit mixed on this. Um, so, you know, on one hand, I I feel the field is, I believe that the field is progressing rapidly. You know, machine learning, state of the art is is really changing every every day. And so it's difficult to design a formal education around uh, the subject when things are just becoming out of date very quickly. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, the essence of machine learning is still based on just a few fundamental skills. And I think that those are necessary to be taught. So, for example, computer programming is, is more important than ever. Um, and so I think having some sort of exposure to that in, in many different disciplines will help any future researcher. Also, elementary statistics is going to be very important anytime you need to test a hypothesis, um, anytime you want to design some sort of model and fit it to a data set, um, having good knowledge and familiarity with statistics is, is important. So I definitely think that those parts need to be incorporated into, uh, into the education system. I also think that it's important to encourage students to experiment with AI. And so this kind of falls outside of your typical university course. Um, but just as an example, when, when I was getting started in AI, um, this was maybe like eight, 10 years ago, I was reading books and, and trying to read some research papers, um, but I didn't actually implement anything myself. And in hindsight, I really should have started tinkering around with my own AI solutions earlier, because that was really when I did the bulk of my learning from, from trial and error and, and getting a sense, again, developing that intuition for which models work well in which scenarios. And I think that many students can can really benefit from that. It, it provides both real world experience um, as well as as good, uh, you know, uh, a good supplement to their their formal education. Yeah, I'm speaking as someone who uh, probably I have to admit, I didn't excel in maths at school. I wasn't terrible at it, but it certainly wouldn't have been my kind of chosen major. Do you feel that this is possible for anyone or does one have to be extremely good with numbers? No, I, I truly believe that anyone can do uh, this, can can work in machine learning. And in fact, I'm going to, I wasn't planning to, but I, I'll make a plug um, for, there's a course called, by a, a group called fast.ai or fast.ai. And, you know, I think their, their motto is like democratizing artificial intelligence or something like that. Um, but really what they try to get at is a high level, a very conceptual understanding of how machine learning works, how it behaves without necessarily going into the details of the maths. The, the mathematics certainly um, can be added and, and can present, you know, a, a theoretical guarantee that, you know, certain aspects of the machine learning systems are working. But again, understanding how these things behave in, in actual applications uh, is, is much more compelling. It's a lot easier to learn by seeing those examples. Oh, I suppose I should say that there are different modes of learning. Different people have different uh, ways of processing information. But I found that, you know, the fast AI course 
um, and series of lectures, it provides a really nice overview for folks who don't necessarily think that they would excel on, on the mathematical analysis there and instead can, you know, do a little bit of coding and, and try uh, to, to develop the intuition through, you know, experience. Yeah, dipping a toe. I think that's a really nice point to end on because I do think one of the issues with AI is that a lot of people are intimidated by it because they simply don't feel they understand it. So for those people, <laughs> you offered offered a solution. We all need to go and um, test it out for ourselves, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would say that, you know, to anyone who feels very intimidated by the prospects, I mean, you're not alone, right? I I am scrolling through the list of new publications every day or every week. And I, and I often freeze up because I feel like I'm being left behind because there are just so many new developments. Um, but it's okay because it spans a huge breadth of research areas. And so if, if you're really interested in AI, then you should find a, a niche that aligns with your specific interests and expertise. Um, and also, it's okay not to, you know, touch AI. Not everybody needs to work in that area. And maybe you have good reasons uh, to focus on other things, or perhaps just wait till the dust settles and, and you know, best practices and, uh, and, and courses and things like these uh, are designed. Uh, and you can wait till then. Yeah, that's great advice. And it's a very good point. You know, if you look at any other area of knowledge, we don't expect ourselves to know everything about the whole history of the world. Why on earth would we understand? <laughs> like these are huge areas with loads of different you know focal points um so yeah well thank you so much for talking to us today john that's been absolutely fascinating and loads of really useful practical insight there for those wishing to maybe delve a bit further into this topic thank you miranda it was a pleasure to, to chat with you One thing that I um, was was pleased to hear from both Ashuk and John there is that they are both quite cautious about and honest about, you know, their concerns about the development of AI and how data is so important to it and how we are still in a bit of um, some unknown territory in the development of AI. So I appreciated that they weren't these huge evangelists of a tech that I think can be quite scary for a lot of us. But also I was pleased to see that they both really focused on the human interaction and the human element to interacting with the results that AI shows us and just how important that, I guess, machine human relationship really is, which is encouraging. Hopefully everyone uh, took away something useful from those conversations. And that is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to John and Ashok for joining us. And if you'd like to find out more from your colleagues about how AI is operating in higher education and what the future might hold, head over to THE Campus to find resources on things like text generators, chatbots, and the secure use of student data. That is www.timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. We'll see you next time. Bye. And thanks again to Anthology for sponsoring today's episode. A new age of education is beginning, opening a world of possibilities for institutions and learners. At Anthology, they are committed to helping colleges and universities meet the challenges of now, next, and beyond. So join them in writing the next chapter in education together. Learn more at Anthology.com. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.